Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Channing Jones, a former programmer and now game designer, publisher, and founder of CJ Games. His first title, Galactic Era, is currently on Kickstarter with two more days to go and is already funded at 176% of its goal. Channing, I want to welcome you to the binge. You've got an amazing story behind this game. Can you please start by just telling us kind of how you got into gaming in the first place? I always liked strategy games. So when I, I think I, I developed a very early version of Galactic Era when I was a teenager called Galactic Empires or something like that. I can't remember, but it was a, it was a strange game where you also had dice, where you rolled dice to make a map and stuff like that. Yeah, but and then I didn't start. Um, then I didn't start developing board games in earnest until about 2003, and then more concentrated in 2012. I started doing it more intensively, with more of the intent of getting a board game actually published. And um, by that time, I already had uh, quite an interest in science fiction and ufology and various esoteric subjects. And then in 2015, I decided to put all this knowledge into a space strategy game, which I called Galactic Era. And yeah, since 2015, I've been developing this game. This is sort of like my ideal space strategy game because I like playing games like Twilight, Imperium, and Eclipse. And uh, so I wanted to make my own version with my own type kind of improvement in the game that I would like to see compared to those games. This game is, is it's not like you just developed this a couple of years ago. This is, you've been developing this for decades. Yeah. So, so yeah, in theory, yeah. So the precursor to the development, so I haven't been developing, I, I actually started developing in 2015, but all the other things that went beforehand uh, was decades beforehand. So all my uh, sci interest in sci-fi, my interest in ufology, my interest in strategy games and stuff like that. That was all put into this game, which I started developing uh, actually in 2015, but everything else, my, so my, all my knowledge is in the game, basically. So talk to me a little bit about this research. So when I, I, I was watching uh, and anybody that wants to check this out, go on the Kickstarter page, scroll down to the bottom. There's a video on the story behind this and you've created, and we're going to get into the game in a second. So people can you know learn about the actual game, but you've created this universe, which is uh, best described as kind of like a merge between Star Trek and Star Wars, maybe a little bit of Battlestar Galactica. Um, there's UFO uh, myth kind of merged in there, some spirituality, um, conspiracy theory, you just kind of all in one big pot, mix it together. And you've, you've created this, this, this beautiful kind of, uh, this, this universe. So what kind of research led into that? Cause some of this is based on like actual stories that people have had and so forth. Right. Well, it's basically based on all the, all the supposed reports and witness accounts of the many people who have supposedly seen UFOs and met extraterrestrials and who have supposedly been part of the secret space program. So there are some people who call themselves whistleblowers of the secret yeah. space program. So the U.S. military is supposedly has very advanced technology and can already travel to the stars. And some of these members of this space program claim to have been part of that program and have reported their 
what they did during their time in the secret space program and what kind of aliens they met and what kind of technology they have and stuff like that. Um, so that all that is in there and, and, and it's all connected to spirituality because apparently aliens are very into spirituality. Uh, they don't usually have this supposedly this materialistic worldview that we do on earth. They're, they're very spiritual. They believe in higher dimensions and angelic beings and stuff like that and divine and the divine intelligence. So it's the creator of the universe, so to speak. And that all that is in the game. And I've all, I've always had it since 2006. I've had very strong interest in this, this kind of, these kind of topics and also in esoteric and yeah, that's all in there. And that's, that's what, also, that's what makes it different to other games of its kind. Yeah. Like I like the, um, so you have these different humanoid species and you know, the, the, the theory is that you've got these progenitors that, I guess once uh, on different planets, as evolution takes place, usually it'll turn into a hominid, but their head will still kind of remain, uh, keep some of the features of the animal that they kind of evolved from. So you've got a species that has like lion heads, species with like gorilla heads, reptilian birds. And what I didn't know, which I thought was very interesting is all this is rooted in some stories and theories of, uh, of actual stories that people have had of things that they've seen and, you know, supposedly seen and things like that, which I think is, is really cool kind of taking that and then kind of merging that into the, you know, this environment that you've created, which is, which is pretty neat. So let's talk about this game. So this game is, um, on Kickstarter right now, there's two days left. It's the second launch of the games. And we'll talk about kind of the prior launch in, in a few moments. Um, but it's already went well paced past its goal. So right now, uh, last I checked, at least right before we got live, you're at 425 backers. Uh, I'm going to say in euros, it was just over 31,000 euros. So for Canadian listeners, uh, that's 50,000 Canadian roughly. And, um, it, uh, it plays one to six players, right? And then how long does a game actually take? about three hours with with four players it takes about three hours with five or six players it can take an hour or two longer wow and is it because it's so detailed and so involved i guess is why you have the length of this game the way it is yes game similar to twilight imperium or eclipse the the, the goal was to make it playable within an evening yeah and so i think i think it's possible within three hours about Definitely loaded with uh, minis. So lots of minis in the game, lots of player boards. And this concept of, and this is where the Star Wars kind of came in for me, was the the light versus dark, right? And so you can actually, you know, people who play the video game Knights of the Old Republic, you actually have that choice. You can start off as, uh, as the Sith or you can start off as a Jedi and kind of work your way through the world or start off neutral and kind of choose one way or the other. This game, you have to choose. Are you on the path of light or path of dark? And then, but you have the opportunity to change as you go. Is that how that works or? Yeah, correct. You, there's an action where you can switch your alignment, um, but you don't have very many actions in the game. So uh, you can't do it too often. Otherwise you're wasting actions. So, uh, but it, you can do it once or twice or so that's possible. And the artwork is really, really well done. Um, I know at the bottom that you give credit to, you got a fairly large team behind this. Um, with this artwork is, is when did the artwork come into play? Is this something you worked on the, with the artist, even kind of prior to the game being finalized that were flush with some of these characters or, or how did that work? I started working with the artist quite a long time ago. I think it was 
mid 2018 we started uh, started the first drawings. So we've, I've been working a long time with the artist. Yeah, I, I just picked some artists that I found on Borgang Beep that looked uh, a style I liked, and then we started and had we had a bit of interest in ufology. I think he made a previous game about with UFOs, and so I picked him. And he's a Brazilian. Yeah, and I liked his style, so we started. And then how, like, I know that, um, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about the, the, the prior game that you launched the first time around. Um, but some of these components you've, you've upgraded since the last time around. So can you talk about some of the upgrades that you guys have made to some of the pieces and so forth? The, the differences to the first campaign? Yeah, in well, in terms of the, the, the components of the game itself. Okay, so the first, uh, the first campaign didn't have um, so many minis, or rather the minis were stretch goals. And this time I uh, replaced uh, the ships, the space, individual spaceships with minis, the home star with a mini, and the population disks with little city miniatures. Um, because, yeah, as I said, I haven't said this yet, but I had a first Kickstarter attempt in November, which failed, it only got 83%. And so I did various polls, what kind of improvements people would like to see. And uh, Having miniatures was one of the suggestions. It wasn't the top suggestion. One of the top suggestions was a cheaper price, so I lowered the price a bit. I also improved uh, a bit of the graphical design, a few things, and I added a solo player mode. That, that was also one thing people asked for. That's certainly becoming a, a more um, common theme in a lot of games I'm starting to see come out now is the, especially with COVID, quite frankly, you have a lot of people who may have used meetup groups or different ways to go out and socialize who, you know, lived on their own. And now you're in an environment where you can't necessarily do that in every country uh, or every community. And so the, that whole thing has moved either to a digital platform um, or people are looking to find ways to play some of these games by themselves. And uh, I think that's really cool that you guys have added a solo uh, version to this. The other thing I would say that I noticed in between the two campaigns, and I'd say your first campaign, uh, you still hit 28,000, just almost 29,000 Canadian, uh, where you were just, I think like a couple thousand dollars short of your, your goal. Um, so you almost, you almost got it last time, 233 backers. And, um, so when I kind of look at that, where you still had the guts there of the, of the interest in the game, then some of the stuff was just kind of, you know, spicing up maybe some of the design elements or, you know, some of the offering, what are some of the things that you did uh, differently in this campaign behind the scenes. So other than the game design, did you approach um, how you marketed it differently or, or built the community or, or how did you go, you know, a second kick at this? Um, I didn't do much different other than that, that I had, the only difference was that I had the advantage of already having a certain number of, a certain audience already, a certain number of backers who are already interested. So I kept them updated through the through updates through the old campaign i kept them uh informed what was going on and so i had a bit of an audience so i just had to expand a bit more on, on that audience and i didn't really do anything much different uh yeah in, in fact I, I i there was stuff i could do less because of because of COVID. i couldn't go to so many conventions because everything was cancelled so so i previously had gone to quite a few conventions before the kickstarter one thing I did, like a lot of the reviews in the playthroughs, um, there's a lot more on your page now than there was the first time around. Yeah. Would you attribute some of your success to that? Just having more eyeballs on exactly how to play? Because it's a very complicated game, right? Like it were yeah. maybe not complicated, but very robust, right? So um, 
a lot going on and be able to explain how that, how you play the game in, you know, two minutes to somebody, you know, is, is maybe tough to do. So having kind of some of these third parties uh, try the game, give their kind of outside opinion as well. Some of your videos on playthroughs, did you find that was kind of a key part of that? Um, yeah, I think it, it was useful to have these reviews, these video reviews. Um, but what I think drove a lot of the, uh, where I got a lot of people is from certain, cert, some of the reviews or reports on um, news websites and, and from one German review, written German review that was quite favorable and captured the essence of the game quite well. And that generated a lot of very, very interested people who spread the word then. So I don't know if these, the, I had I had a first review by Man versus Meeple and then another one this time by Unfiltered Gamer. I don't think I got that many people from, from those reviews. So, so it's like, you know, some reviews really work well and others don't, so you can't mm -hmm. really tell. Certainly embedding them in your page uh, can't hurt, right? So if somebody yeah, comes sure. to your campaign page and they're scrolling and saying, okay, there's a lot of graphics here. And I think you showed a lot more graphics on this this time around than the first time even. Um, but then you come to some of these. One thing I did do difference is I, I moved the right videos up. I noticed that the whatever the top video is in the page, that's the one that will get watched a lot. And in the previous <laughs> campaign, I put my rules video at the top that my rules video was the first video and it's kind of long winded. It takes 45 minutes. I'm not that great of a, you know, actor or anything, great of a presenter. So this time I put the best short video at the top of, of, of the list of videos, which was an improvement, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think when people go to these pages, they really want to um, read less and watch more. Right. And if you can get to the guts of what a game's all about uh, quickly, I think that that's, uh, that certainly is uh, helpful. Um, one thing I found was kind of interesting is this mechanic of how combat happens in this game. So from my understanding, you, um, as you kind of build up your, you know, your fleet or, or your military, you'll have a certain strength versus another player. And traditionally in games, uh, at least games I've played, a lot of my colleagues, you're either rolling dice or there's some kind of mechanic to kind of battle, right? And the approach it seems in this game is you don't do that. You just say, okay, you know, I've got a, a 15, you've got a 13. So if we're going to battle, I win. And the winner gets to choose how much of a loss the other player takes. So you could say, you know what, you had say 13, you lose all 13 points. But as the victor, you lose half of what you take from the other person. Is that true? Yeah, that's, that's how it works. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> That's really cool. The, the one thing, though, is that there is uncertainty in, in, in the battle if if people are using fleets. So fleets are stacks of chips, okay. and they hide the number of ships you have in your fleet. And then there's a fleet tactic, which can, which may or may not give a bonus to your combat strength. So if you're using fleets, you're not entirely certain how strong your opponent will be. And that makes, that makes the combat then interesting. So you need to have uncertainty factor. Otherwise, if it's too predictable, you get um, analysis paralysis and people just start trying to figure out the whole game. And the way I solve that is by having hidden fleets. So with these hidden fleets, so you'll have what, like zeros in there or you'll have different uh, numbers yeah. that, so that the people can't, they can visually looks like a stack, but they can't tell kind of what your Correct. scores. 
Yeah, there, there's low numbers, there's high numbers, high denominations, low denominations, and zero. So you usually can't tell from the size of the stack uh, what's in the fleet. But there is a bit of memory element. So you can see, if you remember where those ships came from, you have a chance maybe of guessing how big you might be. And I think the other thing interesting too is that it, it's not always the victor chooses uh, how much of the other person they're going to lose. I mean, if there's, I think they said if you're more than three times the score, is it, or you're more than double the score, then you can just, it's, it's a three times. So you automatically yeah. uh, destroy the other players. So, but it's not just about battles, is it? It's about building technology. So talk to us a little bit about how other elements of this game work. So I think the technology is interesting. First of all, you have technology tracks, which you level up. You have five technologies, military, spirituality, propulsion, robotics, and genetics. And you can just level them up, up from one to six. The highest level is extremely powerful. So really game-changing powers, but it's very hard to get to the highest level because you only can do one research per round. You only have eight rounds. So maybe you might get an extra level somewhere from, from a planet. Uh, so it's really hard to get to the top level, but really rewarding if you get there. And... Another interesting thing is that you can trade technology levels during the game. So, so the trading works by teaching each other technology. So, so if I meet you, James, you have a high military technology and I have a high spirituality technology, then you can teach me military and I can teach you spiritual knowledge, basically. In the game. So that's interesting. So there's ways, that it, and that almost feels a little bit like um, uh, civilizations. So people that play the video game civilizations where you can trade technology, right? So there's these kind of different elements from different things you kind of brought together in this universe, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Is there a ever a co-op mode on this, on this game or is it? No, there, there's no co-op mode currently. There's an expansion I'm planning that, that I might uh, do as a co-op or, or one versus many or co-op, but uh, currently there's no co-op mode, no. And how does the single version work differently? The, the single player mode, I originally thought I originally didn't make a single player version because I thought it would not work. Uh, but since so many people demanded, I thought, okay, I'll try something, maybe a tutorial version. And then I actually figured out a way that it's a decent solo version after all. So it worked better than I expected. And yeah, the trick was to make, the trick is to have other players in the game, Automas, but limit, sort of, uh, limit these players only to what's important for you for your interaction. So you're basically, rolling dice to see what they do. But but since they're so limited and and, and it just, you, it's playable basically. You're, you're basically playing against two other players in the game, uh, but but they're sort of very stripped down to the bare, bare uh, requirements of what they need to, need to interact with you. So when you first kind of created, did you have any help with the first player rules or is it something you just kind of thought, okay, here's how I'm going to approach it? No, I, I looked at some other solo games and I looked at the, concept of automas and stuff like that and yeah was it a challenge did you find because uh, i know I, I have a game i'm working on right now and we're going to do one to six players on it and it's always been a two to six player game and it's almost like i had to unprogram my brain uh to get into okay now how would this work as as a solo mode did you have any challenges in that regard or did it come natural or how did that kind of play out well i had to figure out how to how to make these automas work and well, the advantage of developing a solo mode is that you can do a lot of playtesting very easily. So <laughs> I always experience playtesting, but if you're developing a solo, you can just do as much as you like. So I played, I played 30 solo sessions, and I, I figured out a solo mode after 30 sessions. So. 
Now, in the marketing of this game, um, have you, and we often get asked, like, different people, are they, is there, like, an email list that you worked with? Did you do social media? I know you've gone to a lot of conventions and things like that, but how much um, emphasis did you place on the different kind of aspects of that, that marketing mix? Well, I, I tried to do everything. I, I, had, I had my own website where I collected emails. I collected emails during conventions, during playtests. I sent out prototypes uh, and had people test prototypes. That was uh, very useful, not only in getting feedback how to improve the game, but also getting fans in the game. So, so, so what what seemed to work very well is getting a few super fans into the game, which will help spread you the word. Some of the people like it, some of the don't, and some people really like it, and then they help spread the word for you. So they post on social media and stuff like that. So, and I also did. I also did Facebook. Facebook seems to be the best social media website for uh, advertising for a game. So I set up a, 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 a group, Facebook group, and a Facebook uh, page for my, for my uh, company, and I used that. And I uh, did ads on Board Game Geek. I did for Facebook ads, and you know, I tried. I tried a lot. What uh, was more successful for you, the Board Game Geek ads or the ads on uh, Facebook? I have to check the numbers. They're, they're pretty pretty similar, actually. Uh, they're pretty close. I, I, I guess the board game weeks are, are slightly better because I spent slightly less, but I got the same number of people approximately from from both ads. But I must say that. I was going to say, that's surprising. Uh, I would, most people that I've talked to who have used Board Game Geek have felt that the cost was a lot heavier than it was on, on Facebook, but you've had the opposite. I've had the opposite, but but the ad performance isn't very isn't very good altogether. Uh, I must say, uh, it's it hasn't been really worthwhile. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. But if I just look at the um, that I that I that came in that I get direct referrals to, it's less than the money. But of course, there might be hidden extra people who got noticed and you know did a search or some found their way to the Kickstarter instead of clicking on the link went a different way or something. So, and then in terms of your email list, how, how big did you build up that email list? 300, 350 or something like that altogether. Nice. That's decent. So is there plans to turn this story into something beyond the board game? Like, are you going to, um, we talked to, um, uh, the guys working on the pretty princess Pomelo anime style card game, uh, a week ago. And, uh, you know, that, that's where their head is at is, you know, we've, we've created this kind of universe or that we've created this environment with these characters. Maybe there's somewhere else we can take them beyond, beyond the board games. Is, has there been some considerations on your end with that? Uh, not really so far. I mean, well, there will be a, a booklet. There will be a game where you can just, you know, read the story. It's uh, more or less the same that you can read on the website, but a few things extra. So uh, you'll be getting a few new things and, there is one thing I've been making. I'm making a series of shorts. I'm making. Um, I'm having a, a ghostwriter write a story. A story. So she's writing um, a, a multi-part story. We're in part four, I think. Now you can read them also on the website. And where did you find the writer? Was that again just kind of outsourced into like a Fiverr or one of these uh, Upworks or? Um, What's that uh, website? Freelancer or something? I can't remember. Freelancer.com. No, it's it's the other one. I can't remember. Uh, there, there's another one like Freelancer. I can't. 
I, I posted I posted a job offering and I see and I said needs to know law of one. So a lot of this story is based on the law of one that's that was supposedly channeled by extraterrestrials uh, in the early 1980s, and it's a well, it's it's a very advanced philosophy, hard to read, hard to understand, but a lot of people in the esoteric community really like that, and this whole uh, dark light philosophy is based on that. Um, the dark light idea behind the game is based on this philosophy, on this cosmology, and so I needed a writer who having a writer who doesn't who needs to read into this material, it's too much. Uh, if they don't know that material from the get-go, it's, it's not going to work. So I, I need to find somebody who knew that material before they and I actually found somebody. Yeah. And had they written books on, on this material already? Like, had they done some work or? No, no, they just knew it. They had read it. They, they were uh, familiar with it. And what is the, sorry, what is the philosophy of one for those who don't know? The law of one? Or law what of the, one. Well, the basic, the, 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 the core, the core message from the law of one is that everything is one being, essentially. We are all one being. That's what they say, in essence. So it's kind of like this idea of we're all connected or there's like a yeah. cosmic being and we're all just elements of that cosmic being. Yeah, we're all one consciousness, basically. And when we evolve spiritually, we evolve back to the whole and our consciousness grows and eventually we merge with the whole again, with the community of souls, so to speak. Wow. Well, there's certainly a lot of these elements that are built into the game, which is kind of cool to see that in the story. So where do you go from here? What's, what's next on the docket? So I know you've had your hands full kind of building out this game and uh, congratulations again on uh, a successful Kickstarter still two days ago. So anybody interested in this, check it out. Uh, Lots of online materials explain this game to you. It looks really fun and, uh, and, and certainly you can still back the project. There's two days to go. Um, But Channing for you, what, What's kind of next up? What, what are you gonna What are you gonna work on? Well, this is a learning process for me because I've never published a game. So every step of the game, I'm learning. Sure. Every step along here, I'm learning. So now I have to learn how to manufacture a game. So I'm not gonna, of course, produce it myself, but I have to provide everything necessary. If I have to find a factory who will produce it, and I have to provide them with all the necessary input they need to produce the game, and yeah, and then fulfill it. So shipping. So manufacturing and shipping is the next thing I have to learn in this uh, process of publishing a game. So how did you produce your prototypes? How, how did you, I mean, cause they, they look from what I've seen online, a lot of it looks like actually a completed game. So how did you get to that point? Well, I, I made, I originally made my own prototypes, my own rough prototypes in, in a LibreOffice and various drawing programs. And then, as I said, I hired uh, the artist um, in mid 2018 to start working on the graphics. And he's been working on it since then. And he's been developing all the graphics and all the artwork since then. Yeah. So I've actually spent quite a lot of money on this game before the Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. And where do you intend to manufacture? Are you going to manufacture in China or are you looking to use like a broker, like a, like a, like a Panda games or one of these, or. I haven't decided yet, but probably in Poland because it will be easy, easier with um, easier with uh, taxes and, and duties, import duties and stuff like that. Cause I live in the Eurozone and so I don't have to pay import duties um, and it might be probably easier i have to talk i have a production advisor i have a i have somebody who will advise me uh, he's a publisher i've worked for him before and he will i will discuss this with him after the kickstarter oh nice and um in terms of the split like do you see most of your pledges coming from europe within the european union 
Yeah, about half of the half of the total pledges are from Germany. About a quarter oh. are from, um, or 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 a fifth are from uh, the rest of the rest of Europe, and then about a third or so are from North America. Wow, it's amazing. You see that a lot. Usually, where games are based, often uh, it makes sense. A lot of the uh, more than half of the uh, pledges are usually in that home country. I know I've had that experience even with my own games, where people are saying, "Wow, you know that many pledges in Canada." It's like. Yeah, you got kind of the home uh, the home turf advantage, right? So yeah, that's how it works. I mean, well, well, I've been showing the game around here at local conventions a lot. So a lot of the fans here are from uh, are from Germany, but also quite a few from Holland because I've been showing the game in Holland quite a bit because I live near the Dutch border. Nice. Well, Channing, uh, this uh, this went by really quick. I want to thank you for coming on this podcast. Uh, it's very cool to hear your story. I, I'm always a fan of seeing people who have. Uh, not fun, funded successfully, dusting themselves off, picking themselves back up, getting right back at it and coming through and, uh, and, and crushing their goals. So uh, once again, congratulations to you on that. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity uh, to talk to you. No worries. All the best. You take care. Cheers. Bye. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music, by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.